0: This is CNN breaking news. Breaking news.
1: We begin with breaking news, of course. As
0: this we... is an ABC News special report,
1: New York, and we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme
0: Court. On the on U.S. It. Supreme Court. You know, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. To Good be... morning.
1: We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. In
0: judgment. a six to three decision, it's a five to four opinion the court struck down new york's law which there are three fierce dissents the majority of the court ruling this is considered a major blow to the federal government's power
1: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare.
2: And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism.
1: Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue.
2: Today is Monday, September 19th, 2022. We're back with our second episode of our new season of Polylog, Season One How the Media Covers the United States Supreme Court.
1: Yes, and here we are in Episode Two The Supreme Court and Political Perception. This court is historically different from how it was just a few years ago, but how much does the public understand its political position, and how does the media shape that perception? So just as in our last episode, we're going to begin with our pillars, and then we're going to have some conversation.
2: Yeah, so pillar one, we just kind of wanted to lay the groundwork of just how truly historic this current court is. Is for some context, it's been almost a hundred years since the Supreme Court has produced so many conservative decisions in one term. Recent analysis by professors Lee Epstein from Washington University in St. Louis and Kevin Quinn of University of Michigan found that in sixty-two percent of decisions, the conservatives won. They It it had conservative leaning the decision
1: in this last term and just in this last term. Wow. We will hear argument this morning in case 191392, Dobbs versus Jackson, women's health organization. General Stewart, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey.
2: And it's not so much that they won in more than half of decisions. Uh huh. We've kind of been heading in that direction for a while now, but they won in huge, hotly contested political cases.
1: Right. Not all cases are equal.
2: Right. Kind of the, the big cases all kind of went that way. In this last term alone, for some context of what these issues have you know, focused on. Of course, they overturned Roe in the Dobbs decision where women and pregnant people were are no longer have a constitutional right to an abortion. There is already a patchwork of state laws throughout the country with varying limits and bans on abortion. In New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bren, the court determined that the Fifth Amendment allowed people the right to carry a concealed weapon outside of their home before the concealed weapon was mainly in their home, not in public.
1: Right. And that was like a hundred year old law. That was right. an old law, too. It was a
2: very old law. The U.S. Supreme Court has just
0: issued a major ruling in the challenge to a New York gun law. Now, this is the most significant Second Amendment ruling in more than a decade. In a six to three decision, the court struck down New York's law, which places restrictions on concealed handguns. That law.
2: And this decision, just for some context as to kind of what it means in the day-to-day life, it came out about two weeks after 21 students and teachers were murdered in Uvalde, Texas.
1: Yeah. Awful timing.
2: Terrible. There were two religious cases that are really emboldening and strengthening religious groups. In a 6-3 vote in Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, the court determined that a high school coach has a right to visibly and publicly pray with his team on the 50-yard line. We talked about this last week. Mm -hmm. There was also in Carson versus McKinn. The court determined that the state of Maine could not exclude religious religious groups from getting a state tuition program that was targeted for private schools specifically. In Western Virginia versus The EPA, the court determined that all regulatory agencies needed to have direct authorization from Congress on any new rules that have kind of, quote unquote, transformative effect on the economy. So literally, the EPA cannot regulate carbon emissions for certain types of (laughs) polluters if Congress has not explicitly said so. Even
1: though that's kind of their job.
2: Like the job is to... (laughs) help the environment but okay so we mentioned last week that oftentimes supreme court case coverage reads like a sports recap except with a bunch of legal jargon right Mm -hmm. and that's definitely the case with each of these historical decisions there were many many articles about each of these each of these decisions we're not trying to say that like oh you can't learn about these like you can there's tons of coverage about them and there were also i would say many stories about kind of like the collective look back of, of the term itself and just how conservative it was but what was more difficult to find is stories that kind of led up to this moment right stories that yeah. showed where a decision from a few years ago how it connected to the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, or how a previous religious decision or case, even maybe even a lower court, led to this Carson decision in Maine. There, there aren't as many kind of like build-up stories. And when you look at just some of these cases, they're not on par with where the American people are. Right. The majority of Americans support a right to an abortion.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: There's various instances of whether there should be limits or whatever, but a right straight out ban on abortion is is not popular. Even with gun rights, you look at a, at least 40% of American households own at least one firearm, which still boggles my mind, but that's that's the case. Yet almost 75% of Americans think gun violence is a major problem. And over 50% think there should be stricter laws to be able to purchase a firearm itself, right? So there's this like major gap in between where the american people feel on certain issues and these recent decisions and that's not to say that the supreme court's required (laughs) to like think of public sentiment like that's not their job obviously but still there's this disconnect and it's like really hard to kind of wrap your head around that it's like so far from our lives sometimes
1: and so far from where the american public seems to be on a lot of these major issues on
2: a lot of issues So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this disconnect, Brendan. Mm
0: -hmm. What do you
2: think news organizations could be doing to better demonstrate how far the gap is between the court and the American people?
1: You know, I think that's a really great question because it opens up a larger discussion of what do news organizations think of the American people? What do they think of the public? How do they think of the public? My sense is that news organizations don't think of one public. They think of a public divided, a public divided into Republicans, into Democrats, into progressives, conservatives, and therefore their coverage of that public and of you know policies affecting that public is shaped largely by that sports coverage right the the game frame as they call it these people are winning these people are losing now on frontline we're living in the era of the mcconnell court now supreme revenge battle for the court and so my sense is that as a result, because they generally divide it into winners and losers, into your team is winning or someone else's team is losing, I don't think that that game frame equips the media to easily recognize when there is an imbalance between the court and the people in general, because they see the people as divided anyway, right? And so I don't think that they're, super equipped to say oh there are two different groups of fans rooting for the team on the field you know the different teams on the field and it looks like there's more fans for the rams than the cowboys i don't know i don't know sports teams i don't even know if that's they're in the same game.
2: They're, they both play football. OK, correct.
1: good. Right. So you, I don't think that the, the media is able to look, is really paying a lot of attention to, oh, well, the Rams won this game, but actually there's a lot more cowboys in the stands today. Right. I don't think they're noticing that. I don't think they're recognizing the disconnect because they don't think of the American people as a median, as an average. They think of the American people as divided. That's my that's my take on it. Before the news organizations demonstrate the disconnect, they have to recognize the disconnect. And I don't know if they recognize it.
2: I think they do, to be honest. I think they recognize how huge these decisions are. And I think, especially the coverage in the last year, there was a lot of shock and surprise in the news coverage of just how uh, that a lot of these decisions were 6-3 and not 5-4. I
0: can tell you right now that in a 6-3 to three decision written by...
2: But... I think that there isn't any like there isn't enough what this means to people in their day-to-day life. And I think that would better demonstrate the disconnect, right? We talked about last week about the football coach who was praying on the 50-yard line. The
1: uh, high school football. Yeah, the coach. high
2: school. We're talking a lot about football. This is weird. But we talked a lot it's, about that it's, football it's coach. It's
1: too much. I don't feel comfortable. <laughs> I haven't done nearly enough research <laughs> into football as I did into the Supreme Court
2: here. <laughs> that is 1000% true. But We mentioned last week that that was seven years ago, right? And we haven't heard about how, you know, students felt. We haven't seen a lot about... You know, if there was impact on any scholarships and kind of playing time, if parents felt betrayed, if school, the school district felt like they didn't have any legal authority as an employer, like all of that stuff, I think, would better demonstrate like what this case means to people, yes. the people who are actually affected by this actual instance, not even just the application of the decision. And, and we don't see that in the coverage, which is, I think, a real shame.
1: Well, it's actually a really good point. I mean, I I took a look at the top stories from the top news organizations that covered the the Dobbs decision, the decision to overturn Roe. And I looked at the top story in the New York Times, in the Associated Press, in the Washington Post, and in on CNN, and then I also looked at Fox News, whatever that coverage was. I tried to look at the top ones that were printed and as well as ones on TV and stuff. But one of the things that I walked away with was a surprising sense that some some of the major, major publications were not embedding information about the impact about the American people's feelings and recent polling on these matters in the way that for example, CNN was CNN did a really good job of centering that anchoring it with where the american people in their polling stood on this issue but a lot of the other major organizations didn't do make the effort now it helped that cnn like ran a poll right they had recently run a poll on the topic so they could highlight that fact and likewise abc news highlighted one of their polls on public sentiment when talking about the dobbs decision
0: this a little bit more. Our ABC News Washington Post poll that came out today shows that the majority of Americans support Roe, say abortion should be legal in most cases and should be left up to a woman and her doctor. It seemed
1: up until... But those are kind of outliers. And that's just, there's no excuse for not anchoring where the American public is when it comes to these rulings.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. That brings me to the next kind of thing I wanted to talk about, where if you think there are instances in any of these stories or on any other issue that you were kind of looking at where the issue is going to be evolving due to the SCOTUS decision and where the news coverage fails to make that connection. Last week, we talked a little bit about kind of Medicaid coverage and how oftentimes it's not the news coverage doesn't demonstrate that it's because of the ACA ruling by the Supreme Court where that became not mandated. And now electorates have to force their state legislatures to do that over the last 10 years. But when doing research for today's episode, I was listening to Passing Judgment. It's a podcast hosted by Jessica Levinson. She is a law school professor at Loyola Law School. It's in Southern California and LA County. Mm -hmm. And she had some really startling numbers about what this Supreme Court ruling could mean in terms of the number of concealed weapons in LA County.
1: And again, Jessica, very much like that Dobbs decision, this decision has implication for other states that reach far beyond New York, am I right?
0: That's exactly right. So of course, the court is looking at New York's law, but it's making a decision as to what is permissible under the Second Amendment. So it's a constitutional decision. And that means if New York can't have a May issue law, then no other state can either. So as I said, there's about half a dozen states that have these similar laws. And These states are home to a great deal of the population in America. California is home to almost 12% of the nation's population. And let's put specific numbers on this. This would also change the law where we're both talking to you from Los Angeles County. There's about 10 million people who live here. Our sheriff has said that right now there are under a thousand concealed carry permits. He estimates that after the Supreme Court ruling, this could very quickly explode to 50,000. So we talk about these cases and we talk about... Now, those are
2: just extremely startling numbers.
1: I mean, unbelievable.
2: Like, I, I thought it was like, in my memory, it was like four or five times, you know, more weapons. No, it's like 50 times potentially the number of concealed weapons in L.A. County.
1: Which is, as she mentions, an actual... It's not like she's making this up. This is from law enforcement. This yeah, is, law, this is enforcement law enforcement saying this is what they expect. Yeah,
2: yeah. we're only a couple of hours from L.A., so it was, like, extremely troubling to hear. But it just means when you're out and about, the chances of somebody being armed next to you is that much higher. And this is just one metro area. There are plenty of other areas in the country that are going to be affected as well. And in my reading of the coverage of this decision, I never saw that. I never saw the potential impact on people's day-to-day lives and what this could mean literally a year from now.
1: Hugely, hugely missing.
2: And and it kind of was like, I mean, we're only a couple hours from LA, so like it really struck me, but it, it was such a powerful like, oh my God, like Of course, of course, this is going to change people's behaviors like all these decisions do. But I haven't really I never saw that in any of the decisions about the New York gun case. And so I think there's a real missed opportunity to say, like, actually, this is going to mean, you know, it's easier to for the person standing next to you in line at the grocery store to have a weapon.
1: Right. I I think when there are instances like that, the press should think about it as how would we cover this if this was a controversial piece of legislation that was passed by, for example, the Republicans and signed by a Republican president into law at this exact moment in our culture, in our political narrative, right? If at this exact moment, a bunch of Republican senators, Republican GOP representatives passed a law that went into effect immediately that had this exact same thing Always in it. Always good to see you, sir. Well, you? Uh, so, you, you know, this is a big win for Republicans, obviously, but this is still a tax plan that is quite unpopular in just about every poll that you look at. How do Republicans go about selling this plan? How worried are they about how this might weigh them down during the midterms next year? Yeah, look, I mean, they were also worried about having nothing to show for all of this power they had weighing them down in the midterms. So but at least now they can point to an accomplishment. But uh, as you heard the president sort of say there, what they're counting on here is that people start seeing, you know, that less Withholding in their paychecks uh, in the new year. Maybe the economy continues. That's how it should be covered. Right. With that
2: same level of kind of weight and and trauma, (laughs) to be honest. Right.
1: And and discussion. And how is this going to impact things? And what does this mean for the political environment? And why would people choose to do that when we've just had a bunch of shootings? Right. What is the timing of this? All of those sorts of discussions that you would ask if this was legislation that was passed should be absolutely the conversations you're having when it's a decision from the supreme court not only because it will literally have the exact same effect on the country but because it will a often have a more immediate effect there's no phasing in or out often right, of, yeah. of these sorts of decisions and I'll, i mean there have been historic cases where that was the case but in general but like general it's, there, there wasn't it's, right, it's a right. Done deal. brown v board was was a was a phasing but that It's more immediate. And then the other part reason it should be covered more with even more impact than if the legislature had done it is because it has more weight. Because it's by the Supreme Court, as we mentioned last week, their decisions have greater weight than legislation because they're as strong and binding as the actual Constitution, at least when it comes to constitutional interpretation that they're performing. Right.
2: Right. And I think kind of you're talking a lot about the impact especially on things that people might more immediately feel but i think there's also instances in which probably the majority of americans will not understand will not understand the impact yes or it will feel very arcane right and that does not mean that it's not going to impact them
1: mm-hmm. and like
2: that's kind of how i felt about the epa case to be honest yeah um, old polylogue listeners probably know like environmental law, environmental (laughs) policy. It's your favorite, right? It is not my strong suit, guys. It is. I live in California and it is not my strong suit. So learning about that case where the EPA will not be able to do regulations (laughs) for the environment unless Congress tell them to, like, can't do big regulations, I should say, unless Congress authorizes them to, like, just like like I, I felt like my skin like tickling like like getting prickly I was just like this isn't, this doesn't even make sense, and right. the fact that like it's actually not just limited to the ePA it's all regulatory agencies, right so think of like hHs not being able to impose rules on hospitals or health insurance companies or whatever it might might be right like i don't know the transport transportation setting something on rail or airlines or whatever it might be right like all of these rules are now nebulous in terms of these regulatory agencies being able to impose them right it kind of boggles the mind that our federal agencies could be that constricted and still be expected to perform well and that's the that's the impact of West Virginia versus EPA right but like all the stories just so show it's like, oh, EPA can't regulate carbon emissions for...
1: Right. Like It's, they it's just, interpreted as a very narrow, right. when in, in effect, it could be extremely sweeping. Right. First,
0: our Devin Dwyer, who covers the courts for us, leads us off with more on that major ruling for the environment.
1: And it can be used as, like you said, a door to... Oh, absolutely. Knock down more. And that's where I think some of the big trends of the court are missed in the coverage are missed in people's understanding there have been multiple efforts over the last few years of this court particularly the conservatives on this court to undermine the power of the administrative state to right. undermine federal agencies' authority to do their jobs
2: which gets us like kind of in wonky land but
1: but it's not wonky and that's what's failing is that like right. the media thinks it's wonky, but it's not wonky when Medicare can't regulate drug prices and therefore people see way more prescription drug costs. Right. There's nothing wonky about the fact that you're being charged more money, right? It's right. it is bread and butter. How much money are you being I know, charged? but
2: like I think there's this general sense of the American public don't care about this. Yeah. Or the American public won't get this. So there isn't even an attempt to explain the administrative state and conservative efforts to strip at it. (laughs) Like a very concerted effort to strip at it. And that's... And how successful those efforts have been. And maybe you're conservative and you're like, you want to be championing it and be proud of those efforts. And you don't see that in the news coverage. Like that is also a very real (laughs) state of news coverage where the work that you're doing is not recognized it's still true that news coverage fails to acknowledge, like, a very real, like, our our legal reality.
1: But that's that's what's so difficult about covering the Supreme Court well. We're not saying it's easy. Last week we talked about how difficult it is, how distant the court is. But another thing that's difficult about it is that the Supreme Court doesn't communicate in a State of the Union address that says one of our top three priorities this year is to undermine the administrative state. Tonight,
0: ...ahead of a consequential night for the President of the United States. In about 60 minutes, President Joe Biden will give his first State of the Union address, a speech historically used to tout successes. It comes, though, at a time of national and global crisis. Our country faces a 40-year high inflation rate with surging gas prices and an ongoing supply chain issue. Today, mm-hmm. on and, Street,
1: and, and it's not telegraphed to reporters and it doesn't become a topic of conversation on Sunday news shows the way that Biden's, you know, 37 points or 337 points, whatever it is that he well, had. Well, then you're
2: looking at like how many times he said this, right, and how right, many right, times right. Did he said that, and who stood on But the and Supreme Court
1: it. doesn't do that. They communicate practically only through their decisions in individual cases. And so it is very easy for a news organization to fall into the groove of k- trying to cover the cases really well but missing how each case connects and how the cases are slowly building up or building down towards something.
2: Right. And it's sometimes it's literally hard missing to predict the forest for the trees. Right.
1: But it's and it's also sometimes hard to predict what that something is. What is the goal of this? Why why mm-hmm. is this, you know? Mm-hmm. I read Linda Greenhouse's book about the the you know, the court term 2020-2021. And, and what was going on there, and she, of course, provided details on a lot of the background of the issues covered. And she's the top reporter, or was, for the New York Times now. She's a columnist for the Times about the Supreme Court. She won the Pulitzer. But she talks about how John Roberts, in particular, works incrementally.
0: But Roberts had his own reasons for incrementalism, or for what looked like incrementalism. As he had seen William Rehnquist do with great effectiveness, Roberts saw utility in planting seeds that could germinate and grow when the climate, and the court, was favorable. It could take a while, but unlike Gorsuch, Roberts was patient. By the time the ultimate goal was in view, he would have managed to move the law so far down the road that the slightest touch could push it over the finish line. The end result would appear to the public as all but inevitable so in his montana opinion,
1: right like he's slowly making changes and decisions in the smallest steps possible over decades so that when finally some big president is overturned after his effort dobbs was not an example of this but after his effort it seems almost inevitable right, right? instead of some some big thing the other conservatives who've been recently appointed don't believe in that technique
2: there's are some legal scholars who are calling this the YOLO court, the You Only Live
1: Once court. Oh, YOLO. I y- thought you said yellow, as no. in like yellow journal. No,
2: <laughs> YOLO. That was, uh, I forget the law professor out of Michigan who came up with that term, but everybody's referring to it, which I think is amazing. Both for, It makes total sense. Both for the professor and also the rapper who came up with YOLO. But. <laughs> Now she
1: want a photo. You already know though. Yeah. You only live once. That's the model. Be yellow and we bought it every day, every day, every day. Like we sitting on the bench. We don't really play every day, every day. when anybody say? Can't see him because the money ain't away. Real. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Yeah,
2: I, I think it's very true. They're taking advantage of the moment for sure. But, Brendan, people don't even realize how conservative the court is. Take us over to Pillar Two.
1: Yeah. So. I really wanted to talk about this because there was an excellent study that came out pretty recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS. This is a study by Stephen Jesse, Neil Malhotra, and Maya Sen. It's based on three national surveys of the American people across 11 years asking about the Supreme Court. The result, they write, quote, the gap between the court and the public has grown since 2020, with the court moving from being quite close to the average American to a position that is more conservative than the majority of Americans. End quote. It also found that many members of the public currently underestimate the court's conservative leaning. And finally, it notes that this gap between the reality and people's expectations of the court means that people are less likely to support institutional change to the court because they think the court is aligned well and is doing its job. So I want to talk about how the survey worked because it's pretty fascinating the amount of data they were able to pull out of just kind of one survey. What they did was they asked respondents their preferences on major issues before the court. They asked each Of the people they spoke to, and they spoke to about 1,500 to 2,000, which is an excellent sampling for a national study, they asked them about 10 to 12 of the most important cases happening each term. And then they estimated the ideological position of each respondent based on their survey responses. Then they also estimated the ideological position of each justice based on their votes across the entire term. And then... Because they asked the respondents what they thought the court would do, they were able to estimate how each respondent perceived the ideological position of the court. So they had three things. They knew where the American people were politically. They knew where the American people thought the court was. And they knew where the court actually was. And with those three data points, they were able to find some interesting things.
2: That is quite clever.
1: Mm-hmm. And they did this across 12 years so they could see the trends. So as you noted, Naomi, the court has become more conservative. And the average, the median justice, the justice kind of in the middle, was Anthony Kennedy for a long time. And then when he retired, the median justice shifted to the right, to John Roberts, who beginning in October 2018 was that middle justice, which is crazy. I mean, he's a pretty conservative guy, but he was the middle. And then in 2020, it shifted from John Roberts to Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh right now is the middle justice ideologically. That's just crazy. But it's what Maybe it is. It's
2: absolutely
1: insane. Yes.
2: Just, I, I don't even have the words <laughs> 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 to be able to express
1: well, it's important, my befuddlement. <laughs> it's important to say median and not swing because Brett Kavanaugh is not swinging yes, anywhere but an to the right. Yes, that's an excellent
2: point. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. People describe like, Describe that as if he is a swing. He's not a swing. He's not a swing. He's consistently with the conservatives. Right. Like 95, 96% of the time or something.
1: Yeah. So according to this PNAS study, back in 2010, the court was practically exactly ideologically positioned with the rest of the country, which is fascinating that it happened to be so well balanced. In 2020...
2: <laughs> it like, good job, President Bush or something.
1: Both those who worked with him... And those who have faced him in the courtroom speak with admiration of his striking ability as a lawyer and his natural gifts as a leader. Judge Roberts has earned the nation's confidence, and I'm pleased to announce that I will nominate him to serve as the 17th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Well, I just, I find it hard to believe, but I guess that's what they say. In 2020... Its decisions were likewise very similar to the country's feelings, which is amazing too. But in 2021, there was a sharp shift that indicates that the court was as conservative in its rulings as the average Republican who was spoken to in the survey, the average American Republican. So going back to 2010, when the court was practically exactly ideologically positioned with the rest of the country, that doesn't mean that most Americans... Thought that was the case in fact back in 2010 most americans thought that the court was more progressive than it actually was more democratic both democrats and republicans thought this but it was actually as i noted about the same as the public if not a little skewed to the right so why was it that americans thought the court was more liberal than it actually was well according to pew research a pew report on the Supreme Court that came out around that exact same time in 2010 said that, quote, the little the public learns about the court often comes from the confirmation of new justices. The increasing perception of the court as liberal may partly stem from the fact that the court's most recent nominees in 2010 were selected by a democratic president. So just let that sink in for a second. Despite the fact that the court was well-balanced with the rest of the country, The American people thought that it was suddenly becoming more liberal because Obama appointed two liberal justices.
0: After completing this exhaustive process, I have decided to nominate an inspiring woman who I believe will make a great justice, Judge Sonia Sotomayor of the great state of New York. Neither she nor Elena's father lived to see this day But I think uh, her mother would relish this moment. I think she would relish, as I do, the prospect of three women taking their seat on the nation's highest court for the first time in history.
1: Which
2: is kind of crazy, also, when you think about it, because Obama only was able to nominate two justices or confirm two justices because he did nominate Merrick.
0: Today, I am nominating Chief Judge Merrick Brian Garland to join the Supreme Court.
2: But he was able to only get two justices on the court in his eight years. And President Trump got three justices in four years.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of instances of that. I mean, we won't even talk about how many justices Nixon got.
2: Yeah, because our brains are going to explode if we add any more to this season. But we're not touching too much the lower courts because there's a whole. We could do three more seasons on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so to highlight this point, it is. It says so much about our, the role of our media and the lack of coverage of the court that most people's perceptions of the court's leanings are based on the confirmation hearings, the nominations and confirmation hearings, even if they have no effect on the ideological makeup of the court itself, which Obama's appointees had no effect on the ideological makeup. And yet both Democrats and Republicans thought after that the court was more democratic. Oh, and uh, and by the way, it was particularly strong among Republicans. Pew noted that between 2007 and 2010, the number of Republicans saying the court was liberal literally doubled. So by 2020, Democrats had changed and thought that the court was more balanced. But with Republicans, it was a different story. Republicans in the year 2020, but they thought the court was very conservative in 2020. But its rulings that year weren't. Yes, Republicans expected more from the court in 2020 than it delivered for Republicans in 2020. But by 2021, things had changed. Democrats mostly thought the court was still ideologically in the middle. Republicans brought their expectations down (laughs) for the Supreme Court in 2021. But in truth, the court took a sudden dramatic shift to the right in 2021, as we know. Now we gather in the Rose Garden... To continue our never ending task of ensuring equal justice and preserving the impartial rule of law today it is my honor to nominate one of our nation's most brilliant and gifted legal minds to the supreme court she is a woman of unparalleled achievement towering intellect sterling credentials and unyielding loyalty to the constitution Judge Amy Coney Barrett. When it became a 6-3 court, and that's when the public's perceptions really fell behind where the court actually was. Now, as the authors of the report note, the misperception matters. As I said before, if people, particularly Democrats actually knew the court's conservative positioning with accuracy, they write, they would likely be more supportive of making institutional changes to the court, end quote. So I'm going to end that here with a final little piece of information, and that is the question of what can change this? What can change people's perception of the court? Now, according to Pew Research, coverage of the cases itself is linked to better understanding of the court. Adults who have been more attentive to recent cases are more likely to say the court is conservative. Two out of three of those who heard a lot about recent cases say that the ideology of the court is conservative. But those who had heard basically nothing at all about the court, who weren't paying attention or whose media didn't cover the court very well, those Americans, 60% of them said the court was still in the middle of the road. In effect, those people are living in the past.
2: So it's so interesting thinking about the timing and pacing of this all, right? Because when coverage of decisions are focused on what was decided, kind of like the after effect of the case, Mm -hmm. kind of the sports recap, as we've been alluding to, one, the American public has to actually be reading that to understand it. And if not, they have to then feel the effect of that decision before they even can have their opinion or assumptions changed of the court, right? Right. Like, if if you don't follow the news, you're already getting, you're getting the late news even later.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: Right? And if you follow the news, it's already late as to what is happening in the court. Yeah. And there's nothing to kind of change the American public's understanding of the court while it is happening, really.
1: Yeah. And there's another huge factor here that you just made me think of, and that is that Let's take all the coverage of the court that we've discussed, particularly in the last episode, right, where all that coverage falls, and put it on a pie chart, okay? Imagine all the coverage of the court on a pie chart. Now, let's just say, as we mentioned, a lot of people's understanding of the court are shaped by nominations, confirmation hearings, appointments, right, all that stuff. But as we noted with the Obama appointments and nominations— Even though that affects people's understanding of the court's ideology, it often doesn't have any effect on the ideology. It might, it might not. But there's no guarantee that coverage of nominations is going to actually change the ideology of the court. So people leaving, you know, having gone through a nomination, like the American people having read all the articles about that they might not be better informed about the ideology of the court. In fact, they might have the wrong impression as they did after Obama's two appointments. appointments. So that is a large section of our pie chart of coverage of the court that people are exposed to. And it's not really bringing them up to speed in an accurate way, right, on the ideology of the court. Then remember what we talked about last week, which indicated that in major newspapers as well as television— At least half of all the coverage of cases takes place before the decision is made. Therefore, before you can understand the ideological decision of that court. And so at least half of that coverage is not confirming or denying people's ideological But you can have some
2: understanding of the ideology of the justices even before. And how they feel about a case, even before the decision is right. made.
1: With, uh, some of that might come out through oral arguments. Right. But remember... And what they've said about that issue before, or... I know, but I don't think the coverage is feels final in people's minds about where the court is, because it's we're not at a final decision yet.
0: From NBC News World Headquarters in New York, this is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. The more liberal justices warn today that overturning Roe would undermine public confidence. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts?
1: Chief Justice John Roberts suggested he would uphold the Mississippi law without explicitly overturning Roe. If it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? But several of the court's conservatives appeared willing to rule for abortion opponents who say Roe was wrongly
0: decided and should be overturned, even though abortion rights have been the law of the land for almost
1: 50 years.
2: I don't think it needs to be at a final decision to be start educating and changing some of these assumptions. I think that's the problem. I think we keep waiting right. until the final decision yes, is out. I agree. And and then there's nothing to be done and people just kind of accept it or cry or rejoice, right? Right. And there is very little like I think public engagement, maybe even re- like a, a feeling of responsibility in what they could or
1: should be doing with our federal judiciary. Absolutely, Naomi. I mean, A conservative court is making conservative decisions all over the place, decisions on what cases to take up, decisions on what questions to ask during oral arguments, like all of these things at each stage are shaped by conservative outlook, right? And so it behooves the press to to underscore that, to remind people of that, and not just to say, oh, well, oral arguments happened, and one side asked you know, said this, the other side said that, and these justices made these comments, these justices made these comments, and, you know, court watchers think that the court might be leaning in X direction, right? And we'll find out in a few months. That's not enough. You have to surface more of that and recognize the trends and understand the history so that you can present to the reader or the viewer or the listener what this means for the court. And it's bigger It's bigger than just copying and pasting what was said in the transcripts. Otherwise, people have the wrong impression, right? And it's so easy for people to have the wrong impression or to miss, as we say, the ideological part of the story.
2: This is so interesting, Brendan, because in thinking about how the American public perceives the court... And our role in trying to think of what is the media's role in facilitating that work, there's a lot of kind of nuance and, and examples of whether or not the media is doing a good job of that, right? And yeah. just this is just like one small example as we were prepping for this show, I realized that on NPR, they rarely, very rarely, almost never refer to a decision by its name. So, oh, wow! F- for instance... In the EPA case, in the coverage of that story, Nina Totenberg, the other legal correspondents never say West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency.
0: Having ruled on abortion, prayer, and guns in the last week, the court today turned to the regulatory power of federal agencies. By a 6-3 vote, the court dealt a major blow to the Environmental Protection Agency's power to regulate carbon emissions that cause climate change. The decision by the
2: conservative supermajority...
1: What do it, they say then?
2: They just say in a recent Supreme, Supreme Court decision, the court decided...
1: Oh my God! The
2: EPA cannot regulate... Like, they say the the they summarize the decision right. but they don't refer to the co- to the case by its name mm-hmm. which like my impression is they're trying to make sure their readers and their listeners understand what the decision means but at no point are they trying to Like, give them the basic framework and language to even understand the decision itself. Like, how can you name
1: understand the impact of a decision you don't even know the name of? Right. I mean, truly, it's like, imagine if political coverage said, a governor from a Republican state or a republican governor from a a state in the south
2: or in legislation not not using the name of the legislation right right you wouldn't do that at least once in the story you would say you refer to the name so people know what they know what they're so people know what they're reading and what they're learning about yeah as opposed to just like thinking about it in terms of biden's tax plan would do this it's like we have to say what that tax plan is like you have to use the name and this isn't true of all news organizations new york times didn't do that they actually linked to the majority decisions themselves but it was just a very weird moment of realizing like why does it have to be so hard to use like our national news organizations as places of like basic learning of what these decisions are Mean and and what they're doing, what they're deciding. Like I had to go to Scotus Blog a lot to like find the name of these decisions that were covered extensively, right? In national news organizations. And then I mentioned, Scotus Blog is a fantastic resource. But like, I'm not a lawyer. I should be able to find it on NPR. Like right, it, <laughs> it
1: comes. It kind of comes from the assumption that like this news is all people are going to hear of it, and maybe they've heard something else going on recently, but like. The fact that it's recent from the Supreme Court is enough, and they're not equipping their listeners to go out and find more.
2: I'm like, how are you going to find out more when you don't even know the name? Right. So, but, but again, in terms of like the media's role in being a facilitator between the public and the court, you have to want your readers, your listeners, your audience to be curious enough to understand it better. Like, right. And I feel like there's assumption that, like, the court isn't interesting enough. Well, it's like, make it interesting. That's like your job.
1: Yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of, like, you ever hear a song on the radio and you're like, I really like this. Who is this? And sure, we can use, you know, Shazam and other things like Ask Siri, what song is playing? But sometimes you're just like, I just need to wait and I need to hear what they say is playing. You know, and you just you just have to wait sometimes. Sometimes you have to wait a while, depending on what you're listening to.
2: (laughs) Brendan listens to to a lot of classical music and sometimes they're really long pieces. They're long (laughs) pieces.
1: I'm like, what is this? And also those apps like Shazam don't work for classical. They don't. They just don't. So I'm just like
2: oh. all of these. And things. the radio will sometimes
1: broadcast like digitally on your car, you know, it'll show up what's playing. But sometimes they forget. I've sent them notes multiple times <laughs> saying, Hello, tell us what's playing. Sometimes you just have to sit there and wait. Or you can go on their website and then you can find it. But NPR, you can't go on their website and find the name of the of the piece of the of the piece the, the name key, of the ruling of the, case. <laughs> of the case no true you can't
0: and everybody's watching for big rulings to drop on everything from guns to abortion those rulings did not come out yesterday but others did and one gave a victory to advocates of school choice npr legal affairs correspondent nina totenberg reads us in by a vote of six to three, the court struck down a state funding system in Maine that was tailored to deal with a particular
1: problem. So but beyond cases, Naomi, is there other coverage that can be employed to help improve understanding of this gap? Or do you think the gap's gonna be evaporated after this Roe decision and that did all the work anyway?
2: I think <laughs> I think it <laughs> evaporated a lot <laughs> yeah, of yeah, the gap, Right. For like sure. this might
1: feel a little moot at the moment.
2: I think we're going to have more of that. I think there's going to be the affirmative action decision. There's going to be more religious rights decisions. And I think they're going to be like continual deep shocks to the American psyche about what the Supreme Court is deciding.
1: It's kind of interesting. I feel like this is actually, I'm glad we brought up John Roberts earlier because, and the YOLO movement of these justices, because... John Roberts was kind of sly, right? He was slowly working to to move things in the direction he wanted them to move, which was conservatively, but I feel like in such a way that it didn't feel as shocking right. and As a result, you can kind of stay under the radar and not make people think that you're being super conservative or achieving your goals. Right. And just be quiet and just get it done. It's amazing to me that Judge Barrett has publicly criticized the decision by Chief Justice Roberts Mm -hmm. that upheld the constitutionality of the ACA and that President Trump is making it clear. A vote for Judge Barrett to be on the Supreme Court is a vote to repeal the ACA and take away health care protection from a majority of Americans. I understand that. Judge
0: Barrett introduced herself to the American public as a mother of seven, as sort of a class mom, a very warm uh, presentation in in the public space. How do you fight that?
1: But this YOLO movement of just like, we're going to tear the Band-Aid off, we're going to knock this down, we're going to like reverse precedent, we're going to dramatically change where the court is, it's actually drawing a lot more attention. And a result of that is, and I hope these justices realize and we can talk about it more deeply, but it's mentioned in this article, like people who feel like the court is out of step with the American public are more open to institutional changes. And that's going to be way more likely with this court than previous courts that were.
2: And I think like by decision, like understanding decisions will impact that, too, but also understanding how long it takes to make reform happen and how long lasting these decisions and appointments last (laughs) just in the 90s, the average of tenure of a supreme court justice was closer to i think it was like 12 or 15 years Mm -hmm. it's like 27 years now yeah amy comey barrett is 50 50 years old 52 years old this is not like a phase of the court that's gonna last two three five years it's going to be until like i'm a senior citizen (laughs) and that's like freaking wild And I think there's that like longevity piece that's also really missing in a lot of this coverage that should add to that kind of like culture shock of the American people as they understand this court better. Another piece that would be, you know, the lower courts, I believe it's either one in four or one in five judges in the lower courts were Trump appointed because McConnell left them open for so long.
1: While Obama was president. While Obama
2: yeah. was president, correct. So there was just like a huge, huge list of vacancies.
1: Once we confirm Judge Wilson today, the Senate will have confirmed 200,
0: 200 of President Trump's nominees to lifetime appointments
1: on the federal bench. And following number 200, when we depart this chamber today, there will not
0: be a single circuit court vacancy anywhere in the nation for the first time in at least 40 years. Not be a single circuit court vacancy anywhere in the nation for the first time in at least 40 years.
2: And so, like, there are long-term consequences to that. It's, it's not like this whole, like, get out to vote in November. It's like, it doesn't work that way, <laughs> you know? And like,
1: Well, it helps. It helps. People should go out and vote. Yes, in yes, it should.
2: Go. But like that, <sighs> that should not be. I think it's irresponsible to tell the American public to go vote in November when you haven't demonstrated the long-term, like decades-long effect of what the Supreme Court is doing, and fe- telling people that there's going to be immediate change after there's some sweeps in November. Like,
1: right, right. That, well, yes. I mean,
2: honestly. That is a fallacy. Yes. And you're like giving, and I would say this is like irresponsible of the media and also of like political strategists. Like it's
1: yeah, but honestly, very dishonest. Yes, but to be honest, I mean, when we're talking about institutional reform, institutional reform can have more dramatic and more immediate effects if elected officials are explicit about it, you know? And we'll, we can talk about this, In greater detail i know we will later but congress has the right to define the supreme court in lots of details it can define how many justices there are it can change the court's actual jurisdiction it can impeach justices these are all things that the court that the congress has tried to do or has succeeded multiple times in doing over the course of american history and so Those are changes that can have much more immediate political effect. And they did in in past history, historical events. But in order for that to happen, yes, it is more likely to happen if politicians are explicit and have an actual platform for reform, which no politicians right now seem to have. I would I just want to make a little plug and say, I don't think that coverage of the cases is quite enough or should be quite enough and that we need to have more Supreme Court coverage that is front page news. That is driven by the media's analysis and recognition of trends of the court and less by the latest release of an opinion.
2: Yeah, and I would maybe kind of like a evolution of what you're saying. I think there needs to be more Supreme Court coverage on legal issues that are affecting and moving across our federal judiciary and move away or, or not solely have the lens be of what the Supreme Court is hearing, right? Because I think the, exactly. the trend of an issue is much more illuminating than the majority decision on, you know, X and Y case.
1: You're exactly right. And I would love to see a statistic of and, and see a goal of how many stories is a top news organization like the New York Times Running in top story positions, right, about the Supreme Court, how many of those are driven by a court's decision and the court's timeline, and how many are driven by the New York Times decisions and the New York York Times timeline? And that should be true in politics too, right? Like how many stories are you actually deciding this is important regardless of what the people in power say? We think this is important and that the American public should be paying attention, even if they're trying to hide it, even if they're trying to do it, you know, slowly, whatever. That I think is going to be the metric that matters the most about whether our media is really being a value or whether it's just being a mouthpiece of those in power.
2: I, I completely agree. One million percent. I don't say that often to you.
1: So. I know The million percent <laughs> is is a good percent. I gotta say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so today we talked a lot about people's understanding of the court. Next week we're talking about the court as a political institution, or having political motivations more broadly.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's there's a great desire out there, and I think it's worth talking about the desire by the american public to have a court that is apolitical that isn't very political right and
2: what does that even mean apolitical right because that's not
1: reality exactly and so you know how realistic is that and also looking at the history how political has the court been historically so lots to talk
2: through next week but until then
1: this week and every week we we... encourage
2: you to make your dialogue count whether it's about the supreme court or anything else that gets you fired up
1: and of course, we'd love to see that dialogue extended our way. You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. We'd love to see those emails and feedback on the new season.
2: You can follow me at Soda Naomi underscore.
1: You can follow me at the title on Twitter, and you can follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.